Would you please turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Galatians? And uh, this morning we are, uh, we're looking at Galatians chapter 5, and I'll be reading the first 15 verses of Galatians as we continue on uh, in our sermon series, which we're, we're getting close to wrapping this up. In fact, uh, I'm going to look at the first 15 verses today, look at the rest of chapter 5 next week, and then after that we're going to look at all of chapter 6 in one, one sermon. And then, uh, and then for the fall, we're going to begin uh, a, a kickoff sort of our vision sermons. And I'll, I'll be bringing, I think it's like six sermons that's connected to our vision as we roll all that out. But this morning, if you would, uh, follow along with me in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 15. If you're a guest with us today, we're really glad you're here. And you'll be able, I'll, I'll make sure you connect with us and are able to follow along uh, with us, even though you haven't been here for the rest of the sermon series. And so beginning in verse 1, Paul writes this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And this is God's word. And so a lot of times I'll, I'll be asked, because you guys know that I'm a, I'm a movie guy, that, you know, what my top movies are, and I will tell you what is in my top five. I'm not going to tell you all of them, but I'm going to tell you one in my top five, and I don't know where it is exactly, it's just, I don't think it's number one, but it's the movie Braveheart. Have you seen it? Yeah. I love that movie. Do you know what, if those of you, do you if, let me see how many of you have seen it, so I'll, all right, all right, you guys have it. All right, so, so this movie is about the, the 13th century Scottish freedom fighter by the name of William Wallace. Played by, the character is played by Mel Gibson. And, and it is a, a movie about their, um, their battle for freedom against the oppression of the, the, the English crown. And, and so through the whole movie, I mean, it's basically a war movie, it's a love movie, it's all these different kinds of things. But eventually... Uh, William Wallace gets betrayed by, um, by someone he knows, by a, by a friend, actually. And he is captured by the English soldiers, and he is tortured. And he's told to recant. And, and what they say is, if you will just recant, if, if you will acknowledge our rule over Scotland, if you will accept that, just say it, we will show you mercy. And so this is towards the end of the movie, and it's, it's one of those great scenes in that movie. And if you've seen it, you'd know exactly where I'm, where I'm going. And so he, he, he gets them to stop torturing him so he can speak. And then he musters all of his strength and all of his power and energy into the top of his lungs. Do you remember what he cries out? Let me hear it. Freedom. There you go. Freedom. And, 
And the music is great. And they show the faces of all the, the people who are following them in the crowd. And, and I'm like sitting there and I'm, I'm ready to go to battle. I'm ready to go to war because it's just so moving and so powerful. Because there's something about, I mean, you know, and we all know this. There's something about freedom that it's just the longing, not just, not just the things you see in movies. But it's the longing of our hearts. It's, it's something we want. It's something that, that nations want and people want that are oppressed and under tyranny. We want to be free. Now, one of the things that Paul gets at in this, this particular chapter, and this, this, uh, even verse 1, is how this is really something that's definitive of what Christianity is about. That Christianity is about, about freedom. That's what it's about. And so, if you notice the very first part of verse 1 again, he, he makes this statement, For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom. In other words... When you think about what the gospel does, it offers us this. It gives us this. It gives to us freedom. This has caused many scholars in, in thinking about this, this section, this passage of, of Scripture, and to think about this verse, that this may be the central verse of all of Galatians, and certainly the central theme of Galatians, that everything that Paul is saying about the gospel ultimately leads to this conclusion that we are now free. Some of you may know the name F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, who's a New Testament scholar, and, and he actually has this great book out where he, he calls Paul the apostle of the heart set free. The apostle of the heart set free. And so what he wants us to know is that we are free. And so, so what he does in this passage is he helps us to understand that and helps us to really kind of think through what does this mean that we are now free in Christ. And I want to show you that from the passage in, in a few ways, in three ways as we move through it. And I'm not going to highlight my, my points this morning. I'm just going to work through uh, each one, one after the other. But the first one, that, then the first thing we see in the passage is that Paul makes it clear that we are, we are free from slavery. There's a freedom from slavery. And that, that makes all the sense in the world because when you talk about being free, you're being set free from something, whether it's bondage or imprisonment or oppression or tyranny or some kind of thing. Well, the first thing that Paul makes clear to us is that we are free from, from slavery. And so if you notice the, the entirety of verse 1, he goes on to write this, For freedom Christ has set us free. And then he says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so the contrast that he plays out here for us is this contrast between being free on the one hand, and on the other hand, being under this, this yoke of slavery. And what he says is we need to stand firm, which is actually a word that he's pulling from the, from the arena of fighting and the battlefield and warfare, and it, and it means to fight. And so what he's saying is because Christ has set us free, then what we're called to do is to, to fight to remain free, to stand firm in that freedom and not submit again. And he uses this language to a yoke of slavery. So what is this slavery? And that, this is really important that we understand. What is this slavery that he's talking about here? Because I know in the Christian life, we can think of a, a few different things. I mean, we can think, all right, in Jesus Christ, we are free from sin. Yes, that's true. In Jesus Christ, we are set free from, from this, this broken, corrupt world system. Yes, that's true. In Jesus Christ, we are set free from the ultimate reality of death. Yes, that's true. I mean, we, we, when we know Jesus, we have eternal life. Even though we may die physically, we have eternal life. We know all of those things are true. But what is he getting at here? When he says that we are not to submit to a yoke of slavery. Well, I think the, the way to understand that and the word that helps us to get that 
is actually the word that we would most easily pass up in thinking about that. And that's that little word again, again. And this is one of those words that we don't even think about. I mean, we just move right past it. We don't consider what's, because it's just, well, whatever that means, it means whatever, right? But it is so critically important, and it's, it's actually in the Greek. This wasn't something they put in the English to help us understand, though. No, this was actually in the Greek. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's the word to underline and circle, because it'll help you understand what he's getting at. And so in order to then kind of get at the again, we have to think about the story a little bit. And so remember what happened. Here are these these believers who had trusted in Jesus through the preaching of the gospel through Paul. And they were in that region of Galatia, and they were by, by and large Gentiles, which meant that they were... They were formerly pagans. They were not Jewish. That's the way of thinking about this. And so Paul goes in and he preaches the gospel and they accept, they trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And they know, they know the freedom of Christ. If he sets you free, you are free indeed. Okay? But then there are these false teachers that come. And they come from Jerusalem. Then we call them the Judaizers. And the Judaizers, they come into these churches and, and remember what they tell, they tell these Gentile Christians to do. They tell them to take on the law. They tell them that they have to get circumcised. Things we've been talking about. Things you even see in the passage that's in front of us today. Okay. So now remember that they were pagans before. Now that means this. They weren't even in any way before trying to do the Old Testament. You realize that, right? A few of them may have I don't know, may have heard of it. It depends on how much interaction they may have had with Jewish people, how much interaction they may have had with the synagogue, whatever. But they were not doing the law before. And so these Judaizers come in, and they're pushing the law on them. And so now you have to ask yourself, why the word again? Why is he saying to them, when this is new, this is different, this isn't what they were doing before, why is he saying to them, don't go back and submit to a yoke of slavery again? Well, the reason has everything to do with really what they were doing and what the Judaizers are doing. Because what the Judaizers are really doing is trying to take Christianity, which is all about Jesus, which is all about grace, which is all about relationship with God, and they were trying to turn it into a, another religion. And if pagans, remember, I didn't say they were atheists. I said they were pagans. They had all of their pagan religions, did they not? They had all of their idol worship. They had all of that pattern in them. They had all of those ways that what it means to know God or the gods or however you want to describe it is it's all about what you do, what you bring to manipulate, to placate, to somehow do this thing so that God or the gods will receive you and accept you and love you and show you favor. And that's where their paganism was. And that's where religion is. And so you know what Paul is saying that they need to be set free from. That they need to understand that they, need, they don't go back to this yoke and bondage of, of slavery is, is this. It is the bondage to, I guess you could say to religion, but let me push it further. It is, it is bondage to self. It is this, this sense in which somehow 
we can bring something or offer something or do something that just in ourselves to make ourselves better before God or, or placate God or be more acceptable before God. And that is contrary, it's antithetical to the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so the, the great Bible expositor, the late Bible expositor, John Stott, when he described what, what freedom is, and I love this definition. Here's the way he described it. Freedom is freedom from our own little silly selves. Isn't that good? Freedom from our own little silly selves. And I like that word silly. Because it's, it's, a, it's an apt description of, of, of us in, in all of our attempts to try to bring something or do something that in some way is honoring to God. We, we, we are free from silliness. I'm free from silly Mike. Because I have Jesus. And so what Paul goes on to do is, is he goes on and he, he sort of says, okay, on, on the one hand... All right, here is, here, is, here is self in bondage, and on the other hand, here is Christ and freedom. Charles Wesley articulated that beautifully in one of my favorite hymns, which is And Can It Be. And in the third stanza of And Can It Be, here's, here, listen to what it's, it says. It says, long, and think, before I read it, think about the, the language of bondage and the language of freedom, okay? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now what you're seeing there is you're seeing this, this language of bondage and this language of freedom. And the language of bondage, imprisoned, he says... Fast bound, he says, in this dungeon, he says, these chains, he says, and all of those things, all of those things wrapped around us in that dungeon that we cannot escape from. We can do nothing to get out of those chains. And then he talks about this, this quickening light. That's what brings us to life. That's grace. That's God. That's what he does for us in Jesus. He brings us alive. And those chains fall off. And we are free. Now, what Paul wants to go on and do in this is he wants to make sure that we, we, we understand that one way takes you that way and the other way takes you this way. Or let me say it another way. There's grace and there's us. And he wants us to make sure we understand that the, the only path, the only hope, the only real life is, is the life of grace. And so don't mix those up. Now, I'm the kind of person, and, and I don't, maybe you are as well, but, but I'm the kind of person that in my interactions with people, I'm always trying to come to consensus with people. And so my general disposition is to be a both-and person, right? And so I'll listen to this person say this, and I'll listen to this person say this, and as I'm listening to it, I'm going you know, there's really, there's some truth in that, and there's some truth in that. And instead of it being either or, it's both and. Okay. Christianity is not both and. It's either or. Meaning, it's either Jesus or you're in trouble. Okay? <laughs> let's, put, let's put it that way. It's either Jesus or you're in trouble. It's not Jesus and me, Right? And so if you move on with me in this passage, and you notice what Paul says in verse 2 down through verse 4, he says, look, 
I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, what he's, what he's saying is, if you, if you go the path of circumcision, and so the path of grace, then, then what's happened is you, you're, you're putting yourself in a line of, of religion of what you do. Now, here's the thing Paul makes clear. He does say circumcision doesn't really matter. Think about that for a moment. Down in verse 6, he makes this statement, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircum- uncircumcision counts for anything. That's, it's nothing. I mean, this, this procedure, this thing of circumcision, it matters not at all. That's not what's getting him stirred up. What's getting him stirred up? It's the fact that the Judaizers are saying, you have to do this. You have to add this on to Jesus. This is necessary for you to accomplish in order to have right relationship with God and with us. It's not the thing. It's what's driving you. It's what's behind it. It's the motivation behind it. And so he's saying, if you go the path of circumcision, if you do that, that you now are putting yourself in line with where you have to do the whole law. And guess what? You can't do it. You can't do it. Okay? Let me give you an illustration of this. This comes from, from Philip Ryken. I've, t- I've used Philip Ryken here before. Philip Ryken is the president of Wheaton. He's one of our ministers in our denomination and, and um, a, a scholar, the, a theologian. And he has a, some, some things he's written on Galatians. And, and one of them, he illustrates it like this. He says, you take a man that has a, a really, really expensive baseball. And the reason that baseball is so expensive it's because it has Babe Ruth's signature on it. And so it is of all kinds of worth and value. Okay. And so he decides that it's, it's, you know, he wants to get some money, so he you know, wants to sell that baseball. And so as he looks at the baseball, the baseball is in great condition, but the signature was from Babe Ruth. And so that's been on that ball for a long time. And so the signature has faded some. And it's, it's faded, you know, you can see it. You can tell it's Babe Ruth, but it's faded. And so here's what the man does. Now here's this thing of all kinds of worth. And he's like, well, I'm pretty good at tracing. So he takes his, <laughs> takes his marker and writes, babe, Ruth. And it looks pretty good. <laughs> but what has he done? He's added, think about this. He's added himself to something that was of immense worth. And when he added himself to it, he made that which was of immense worth worthless to him. Now, this really does get at the difference between what faith is and what it is not. Faith is not. It never is. It never is trusting in you. It never is trusting in self. It never is trusting in your power. Faith is always trusting in another. It's always trusting in Jesus. It's always trusting in God. And now Jesus is, and don't misunderstand that illustration, Jesus is of, of immense worth, indescribable worth. But here's what happens. All of that worth, all that he has done, all that he is for us, if we take ourselves and we put ourselves on that. It's like, it's like what that man is doing and writing over Babe Ruth's signature. It's worse than that. Because we're walking away from, from the only one who really can do all of this for us. And that is Jesus. 
And so when you begin to think about it like that, what Paul is doing is he's setting up these two ways that are antithetical to one another. And this is what we have to understand. Religion and grace are not the same thing. You can take anything and you can, it can happen in the church. Please get away from, and I get it in terms of a historical socio, socio, sociological perspective, calling Christianity a religion. But I'm telling you, that is not what this is. Because religion is really about us. And so you're either going this way or this way. And this, I think, for me at least, helps me to understand what he's doing in verse 4 a little bit more. Because he says, you, you are severed from Christ. If you, he's like, if you take this on, that you're going to do this, you're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now that's one of those verses that, that people will look at and say, Well, I don't know how you can believe in eternal security. And it's something we believe in. I mean, we believe the Scripture teaches that. And I'll tell you why we believe the Scripture teaches eternal security. That if you belong to God, you are His. You are His. And and here's a couple of ways of thinking about it. One is Romans 8. And in Romans 8, you see this, this wonderful section in Romans 8 that talks about what is described as the golden chain. Which is that God, the, the same God who, who calls and justifies us is the same God who will glorify us. The point of that is there is this connection that cannot be broken between our justification and our glorification. You think about what Jesus says in John chapter 10, where Jesus says that no one will, will, will snatch us out of the Father's hands. No one will do that. God preserves us. That's why we persevere. He keeps us. And so what in the world is Paul doing here? I think you have to think of it in its context. You have to think about it in relationship to what's going on. And I think what Paul is doing in Galatians is he's arguing for their souls. That's what he's doing. He's passionately, intensely arguing for their souls, and so he's battling. In fact, if you look down with me, and I'm not going to read this, but down in verses 7 through 12, he, he, he starts to argue against these Judaizers, and he makes this statement about them. He says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. You know what that's saying? Paul is basically saying, I I wish those folks who are bothering you would stop bothering you and go and castrate themselves. He ain't playing, right? He's just not. And so back in verse 4, what he's saying is, these two paths do not meet. There's either you attempting to justify yourself by the law or you understanding that your justification is fully and wholly done in Christ Jesus alone. And they do not meet. They do not converge. They do not come together. They are two opposite ends. And so if you are over here, you need to understand that's not grace anymore. You're not. And this is part of what we are constantly struggling with. is to understand the grace of God in our lives. To understand that this is not about what we bring and not about what we do and not about what we offer. Because we have been set free. From our own silly little selves. But there's freedom that, that's more than that. Because there's, there's a freedom from slavery. But the second way that I want you to think about this freedom is a freedom to wait, to wait on God. Now, so think about my points. It's not what I do. It's not what I bring. It's not within my power. But now we are free to wait on God. Now, you know what that, that word means? It's, um, it, it's a word that's used, it's used throughout the Bible, and it's used with, with, with another phrase 
this whole notion of be still before God, right? Be still and know that I am God. And you know what all of that is about? It's all about remembering God. It's all about God being active and God working and God being there. It's all about not, not taking these things into our, into our own grasp or our own hands, but actually trusting and resting in him. And so Paul is making this, this point that the God who, who really began this in us will complete it in us. He'll carry it to completion for us. But depending on what your, your background is in the gospel and your background is in Christianity, I can imagine that for some of us, that's a hard thing for us to understand. And I know it is for me. And I'll tell you why. Because I was ingrained in a kind of Christianity where it was about Jesus and me. And that's exactly what the Judaizers are saying. The Judaizers are saying, yes, believe in Jesus. But they're also saying, you believe in Jesus. That's, your, that's one part of it. And now there's another part of it. And the other part of it is what you do. And so when I'm growing up in these little Bible Belt churches in the South, I'm hearing that. That's what preachers are saying to me. They're saying, believe in Jesus. But once you're in, once he opens the door of the kingdom, now you have to do all these things to keep yourself in the doors of the kingdom. For those of you who know Tim Keller... The pastor of Redeemer Church in New York, he fa- he's, he's famous for saying this. You've probably heard him say it a million times. It's that idea of thinking that the gospel is just simply the A, B, and C of the Christian life. That. Meaning it's the first part of the alphabet. And then the rest of the alphabet is all the stuff we have to do. Okay? And he talks about how, no, it's, it's the A to Z, and that's true. Remember what Romans 1.16 says? It says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's beginning to end. That's not talking about getting saved. That's the whole of salvation. It's comprehensive. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Meaning from beginning to end, it all is of God. Okay? Now, as you consider that, I want you to now look down at verse 5. Because look at what he says. He says, for through the Spirit, by faith, We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Through the Spirit, by faith, trusting in Him, we, that's pulling us into it, we eagerly, and then notice what he says, we wait. We trust in God. I don't think this is a word. I know we have some people who've been in the, the, the news media. Um, there's this word that news people use all the time. They're efforting. You heard that word? That's not a word, is it? I, I didn't think so. They say it all the time. We're efforting. Efforting to do something, right? Okay. If, if there's anything that I guess I could say we're efforting to do <laughs> is we're efforting to wait. On God to do the work, you see? Now, just so you, you don't misunderstand me here, because this is, this is where this gets a little tricky for people. I mean, I think sometimes we listen to gospel sermons, like, like what I'm doing now, what I've been doing with you, and we, we almost walk out and go, well, man, Mike seems to be saying that grace thing. It just doesn't, you know, whatever. Just believe in you got it and all that kind of stuff. But that's not the Christian life. Here's what it means to wait on God. And this is a beautiful thing about our tradition, the Reformed tradition. We talk about, this goes all the way back to the Reformation. We talk about... What are, what's described as the means of grace. Now, let me, let me elaborate on what that means. 
It means that, that God, our God, uses particular things, particular means by which he pours his grace more and more into us to bring change and transformation to our lives and to our character. And you know what the means of grace is? I, I can just tell you, it's things you know. It's things you know from when you were that big. Here's the means of grace. Worship. And prayer. Bible reading and study. It's being in his presence. It's asking him to meet me. It's coming in the midst of of brokenness and weakness and sin and saying, Lord Jesus, forgive me and help me to come to you and just with all of myself. It's all of that. And so if there's there's any parts of this that in terms of, I could say, well, you, you, you got to put something in it. Well, let me tell you what that is. Maybe a key for you to start growing more, maybe it's that you go to sleep on Saturday night. And so you can stay awake and worship. That's how, you know, it doesn't change it. I mean, it's not, you're not fixing yourself one bit. You're just staying awake. Right? Maybe it is working on the schedule a little bit so you can actually be in God's presence and have time with him. You see, none of those things in and of itself, I don't care, I don't care how much I sleep. I'm not getting any holier from sleeping more. I may feel better, but I'm not getting any holier. And I'm not getting any holier by just simply standing, getting up early in the morning and just like sitting there zoned out. But if I'm in the presence of God, that's what waiting means. I'm in the presence of God. Waiting is trusting that he will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And notice the end of that verse where he talks about waiting. He describes it as the hope of righteousness. You see that? Hope of righteousness. This is what we have to get. I mean, that righteousness, it it is, in a sense, it's what we have. I mean, it's what we have in Jesus. We're clothed in righteousness. We have it now. It's like that, that righteousness and the hope of it is what will finally be declared for you and me in Christ Jesus. Not because we have it all together, but because Jesus had it all together. And when we hope, this, this is the part of this that we have to understand. When we hope, it's not the hope of the world. It's not this wishful thinking. It actually is confidence and trust. And what is that confidence and trust in? It's in God. And I will tell you all the time, the fastest way for me to move towards legalism, move back towards self, is because I am not trusting God to do in me what I cannot do for myself. And I do it all the time. And all the time it messes me up. Man, God, I wish, I wish, I wish. All right, well, I guess you're not. So I'm going to try to do it. All right, let's move on. <laughs> so freedom from slavery. Freedom to wait. And then there's one last part. And this is freedom to love. And this is the... Now think about what I'm saying to you today. This is, this is important. God wants new people. God is making us new people. You are not making yourself new. You cannot do that. 
And so we're free from this self. Get your, get your mind off of you. Wait and trust and put your confidence in God. And then there's this beginning of something wondrously true where God begins to reform us. And he does it in the only way possible, and that's he does it by his spirit. And so if you look at, just, just bear with me just for a minute more, and I'll, I'll wrap up. If you look at verse 6, in the entirety of verse 6, notice what he says. He says, the entirety of verse 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. In other words, what you do and bring, it doesn't matter. That stuff doesn't matter. But only faith Working through love, trusting in him, working through love. Now, if you go down to verses 13 through 15, in verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So any of you that ever think that somehow grace allows you to move down that path of license, you're on a wrong turn. There are two wrong turns. Legalism is a wrong turn. License is a wrong turn. The gospel doesn't do that. You're not free to sin. But what does he say? But through love, serve one another. And then in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right, real quickly. Justification by law, justification by by grace, faith in Jesus Christ alone. Two sides. Okay, here's what the justification by law thing is saying. Saying, it's basically saying, you got to do it. Do the law, do the law, do the law. And you can't do it, and you will fail. You'll fail every time, okay? But here's what justification by faith in Jesus Christ means. It means that another, Jesus, stood before the law in our stead. And he did what we could not do, perfectly obey the law. And that righteousness, that record of righteousness that belonged to Jesus, was accounted to us. So we have it. That's the hope of righteousness. We have it, right? We have it. That was accounted to us. He paid the penalty for our sin so that all was dealt with so that we could have a relationship with God, so that God now is close and near to us. He's so close and near to us that he tabernacles with us. He indwells us by his spirit. By faith, as we trust and wait and put our confidence in him, His spirit that indwells us is now at work to reform our character and our orientation and everything through the word, through prayer, through worship, so that as a result of that, self-centered human beings now become more loving human beings. And you know what Paul is saying that actually is? It is the fulfillment of the law. Because the whole law is fulfilled. Isn't that what he says? In one word. What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God is working in us. Unless he's not. Meaning, unless you're not believing it. And I think that's what verse 15 is all about. For if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. All right, I'm going to wrap up with a movie illustration. I started with one. I'm going to bookend it, all right? I can't even say this is my least favorite movie. I hate these kind of movies. I hate, I hate horror movies. I know. I probably made a bunch of folks mad. All right, that's okay. I, I don't like zombie movies. But 
I'm going to give you some zombie illustrations because I think it's, it's, it's exactly what I thought about when I read verse 15. I mean, think about it. Biting and devouring and consuming. That's what zombies do, right? The reason I don't like zombie movies is because they're gross and nasty. And that's what it is when you start eating people. It's gross and nasty, right? <laughs> but what zombie movies are, especially some of the, the really good ones, is they're, they're, they're metaphors. They're, they're they, they are, they are this, this life that is like wrapped up in self. That's what, that's what they are. It, it's it's, a, it's a, the height, let me say it this way, it is the height of antisocial behavior. <laughs> two of my favorite zombie movies, these are probably the only two I like, are World War Z and Zombieland. And I like those because they don't show a lot of that gross eating each other. But what they do show is this, especially World War Z, if you've ever seen that. These zombies are totally insulated. They're totally, it's just like, they're like, when they're not eating, they're like, just standing there. Because it's not about anything but self. But if a human being walks in the room, it's about biting and devouring and consuming. And once that's done, all right. Please understand me here. I'm not saying any of us are not Christians in this regard. These are the ways Paul, I think he forces us to, to, to examine ourselves in relationship to the gospel. Are we believing it? Are we turning back to God? Are we turning back to Jesus? Are we seeing the love of God at work in our hearts? Because I think what he's really saying to us is this. If you're trusting, if you really are leaning on the gospel, you really are leaning on Jesus, you really are coming back to him. In your moments of weakness and brokenness, you're just crying out to him, Lord, help me. I I know I'm not being the man or woman I'm supposed to be. I know I'm not loving the way I'm supposed to be. God works in that, and he pulls you back to where you need to be, and that's in love. But I'm telling you, if your life is just about religion and you, then the way you see other people, eventually, this is going to happen is as tasty little snacks. And that's not the life. It's not the life of the gospel. And so, Lord, would you call us back to that, to trusting you more, and seeing you work in us more? That's what I want. That's what I want for me, and that's what I want for us. I'm telling you, there is not a more beautiful church and a church that is really getting, that it's not about anything I bring, but it's about the sweet, beautiful gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.